What is the church? What is it, really? Is it a, is it a building? Is it a social club? Is it a community service organization? Right? These are some false perceptions people might have. People might even have negative perceptions. Is, is the church a cult? No. What, what is the church? That's a question we're going to look at this morning and hopefully answer. What is the church? And this is the first week in our, in our hopefully six or seven week series of sermons on the topic of the church. And we're going to hopefully answer quite a number of questions. Why does the church exist? How is it that we are composed as a body? How ought we to relate to one another? Um, all these sorts of questions, but, but we should start at the beginning with definitions. What is the church in the first place? So as we go to the word to answer this question, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you and we come to your word uh, to seek knowledge and understanding and wisdom because we lack it. And we pray that you'd enlighten our, our minds to understand more about um, what you intend um, with your church and beyond that Lord that you'd that you'd lighten up our hearts not only to understand what the church is but to to glory in um, in all that you were doing amongst your people we pray all this in Jesus name amen all right so what is the church we should start with the word church itself turn with me if you will to Ephesians chapter 5 Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be in a couple of different scriptures this morning. We'll start in Ephesians 5 and beginning in verse 25. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church. The word here, the English word church, is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia. Now, you don't need to know Greek to understand what the church is or to understand your Bible, but ekklesia is a helpful word to understand um, because the Greek word ekklesia literally means gathering. It means assembly. That's what the word means. You could use it in, in writing or speaking ancient Greek to refer to any sort of um, assembly. You could use it to refer to a, a political assembly or a, an assembly to watch a, a game or something. Um, but in Scripture, uh, Christ and the apostles use the word um, church, ecclesia, gathering, to refer to a specific gathering. And, and there's, there's two main meanings. And, and I'm going to sort of give you my definition of what is the church and then we're going to go to Scripture and hopefully prove it. And you can, you can test me on it and see if, see if you see what I'm seeing here. Um, that the writers of Scripture use, use the word church, ecclesia, gathering, in two senses. The first is to refer to the universal church. That Christ and the apostles used the word church to refer to 
everyone who belongs to Jesus. Across time, across space, everyone who belongs to Jesus is a member of Jesus's church. Okay, that's the first meaning. But also, that, that Christians, in particular times, in particular places, when they gather together, form individual local churches, assemblies. Same word, ecclesia, used in both ways. And so, my concise definition is this. The church is the universal assembly of all who belong to Jesus, made visible in local assemblies of Christian believers. Okay, there's two senses of the word church. We'll start with the first one. And again, test me here. That's my definition, right? Let's see if it's scriptural. Ephesians 5, verse 25. And here's where we're going to see um, uh, an, uh, an instance in which the Apostle Paul is using the church to refer to the universal church. So we've already read it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So obviously here, Paul is not referring to an individual assembly, right? He's not referring to Liberty Baptist Church, right? Although we'd be included in this. He's referring to all Christians everywhere, right? Because who did Jesus die for? All Christians everywhere, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So this is the first use of this word church, that the church is the, the universal assembly of all those who belong to Jesus. Now I, wanted, I want us to notice a couple of things here. First of all, the church is not primarily a human organization. There's all kinds of gatherings and assemblies out there for all kinds of reasons, right? Maybe you're a part of a knitting club, and, and it came about because one person called up some other people and said, hey, let's get together, right? Or maybe you're a part of some social organization, or you're, you work for a company, or you go to a school, right? And these are human organizations organized by human will and human intention. The church is not primarily a human organization. It's made up of humans as a result of the call and the intention of God. Notice what Paul says defines a church. The church, the universal church, is that group of individuals whom Christ died for, whom Christ has cleansed, whom Christ has forgiven, whom Christ has washed and has sanctified. This universal church is defined not by human will or intention, but by the the saving work of Christ and the saving intentions of God. Also notice here the tenderness with which, um, which, which Paul sees in Christ's relationship to the church. Of course, the context here is that Paul's speaking to Christian husbands. He's exhorting them, husbands, love your wives. I have a friend, um, and he and I talk often, and at my wedding day, he, he came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, Ian, love your wife. 
And he tells me that often as a way of encouragement. Ian, love your wife. He's quoting this verse, right? Husbands, love your wives, right? And Paul backs it up by looking at this, at this tender love that Christ has for the church. That Christ loved the church. If you're a Christian, that's you. You're in this group. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify the church having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. I think Paul's referring here to the, the cleansing of the Christian by faith, by the blood of Christ that we're, we're cleansed with the water of the word, the water of the gospel, right? We believe in the good news of Jesus and we're cleansed, we're made whole. And notice, notice the intention. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to who? To himself. That this great universal church is beloved by Christ, and Christ has set his affections on you, on us, so that he might cleanse us and restore us to fellowship with him so that he can actually welcome us into a relationship with him. This is the tender love of Christ for the church. And so first we see here, in this verse and in other places, the apostles refer to the church as this universal church, this universal gathering. Now, this is a hard thing to imagine. This is a hard thing. To, I mean, we're, we're here, and on a typical Sunday, we've got 30 or 40 folks here, and, like, there's millions of people who believed in Jesus, who've been saved in Jesus. And so it's, it's hard to imagine, right, the, the contrast of our humble gathering versus the great gathering of all the saints, right, the church, and we've never been at all, all in one place at one time, right? The, the universal church, everyone who belongs to Jesus. But we do have a picture of a great assembly. So turn with me to Revelation 7. Revelation 7. And I want us to get this vision of the Apostle John ingrained deeply on our hearts. Revelation 7. The book of Revelation um, may sometimes seem to you to be inadequately named. Um, I think there was times earlier in my walk where I'd come to Revelation and not feel like anything was being revealed at all, right? <laughs> Seems like everything's being concealed. It's like, I have no idea what's going on here, right? But as you dig deeper, it really is rightly named. It's a revelation. And if you think about the original audience, John the Apostle is receiving these visions from Christ, and he's writing them down, and he sends them out to churches in the first century, right? Seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and these, are, these are little fledgling churches. These are ragtag groups of believers, and they're struggling under the oppression of the Roman Empire, like maybe there's like a few thousand Christians in the world at the time, and they're, they're pushing up against the 
religious and political power of the whole world. Right? And a lot of them are being killed and suffering for their faith. And so Revelation is like, is like the sky being opened above the first century church. And they look up and they're like, oh, right, God is powerfully at work. Right? If, if nothing else is happening in Revelation, that's, that's what's happening. Right? The, the first century church is, it's like the, God's plan is being revealed to them like, oh. Even though it feels like we're struggling and we're just like this ragtag group and we look around the room and it's like three of us have died this week, but Jesus wins in the end. God reigns, right? That's what's being revealed here. And part of that revelation is a vision in Revelation 7 that I take to be a vision of the people of God, the victorious church of God. Take a look at verse 9. This is the Apostle John writing about his vision that he's received. And he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. There's this great gathering, this great assembly, that no one could number. Right? John starts counting heads, he like, gives up. Right? There's so many people. From every nation. These are not just Jews. This is people from all over the world from all tribes and peoples and languages, and what are they doing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb here is Jesus. Okay, so there's this heavenly vision of this great multitude before the throne of God, standing before Jesus, and they're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Imagine the, the thunder of this, right, as these untold millions are crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And John goes on to describe how there's these elders and angels and they're also saying amen, blessing and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Right? Imagine something 50 times the largest NFL stadium you've ever seen. Right? And the throne of God in the center. Right, and the glory of this scene as your heart is shaking with the sound of these voices. Right? And who are these people? Right? Who are these people? That question gets asked, verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who are these people? They're Christians. They're people that belong to Jesus. What do the white robes signify? That they've been washed by the blood of of the Lamb. And where have they come from is the, the question from great tribulation. They've been delivered out of the great tribulation of this world and into the eternal glory of the heavenly kingdom. And so what I think is going on here is that the Apostle John and what Jesus through the Apostle John is giving the people of Asia Minor in the first century and giving us a vision of the victory of the saints who've gone through tribulation. These people knew people who died. Right? 
The church has undergone great tribulation in the years since Christ's resurrection. More people have been killed for the name of Christ in the last hundred years than in all the time previous. The church has undergone great tribulation and distress, but this vision is the vision of the victorious church of God, right? This great assembly before the throne, basking in the very presence of God. And what are they saying? Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now catch this vision, right? This is the church in her glory. These are the ones who belong to Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you belong to this great multitude. You've been given a white robe, not because of anything you've done, but because you've been cleansed with the blood of Christ. And one day you will stand in this great assembly and praise the Lord and bask in the glory of the risen Jesus and bask in the glory of the church for whom he died. Right? We're a part of this. And yet we're also here in a little church on a hill in Liberty, Maine, in time and space. And the apostles also used church in this sense. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Colossians. Right at the end of the book, Colossians 4. And Paul's... He's kind of taking care of the, uh, uh, just a few sort of details in his letter. He's done with the theological content, and he's just saying, hey, say hi to you know, this person and this person. And uh, Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. I love that. We don't know much about Nympha or about the church in her house, but we know that there's this woman named Nympha and there was a church meeting in her house. Right? And that's a church of God, a church of Jesus Christ. Right? The church, maybe you want to refer to it as the capital C church, the universal church, right? it stretches across space and time. Right? It's this great gathering of all the saints. But there's also individual local churches, places where people who love Jesus gather together, like the one at Nympha's house. You flip a page, First uh, Thessalonians 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of the Thessalonians. So what is a church? What is the church? It's this universal gathering, but it's also individual gatherings. And as we gather in time and space in our 
in our own little ragtag bunch of Jesus believers, I want us here when we gather on Sunday mornings to maintain that vision in our minds of the heavenly church worshiping before the throne of God. Okay? Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, writes about the temptation to look around at an ordinary church like ours and to see it only on the earthly level and to be like, well, this is kind of an old building and it's falling apart in places and, and this is kind of a ragtag bunch of people, right? And they're sinners and they got problems, right? And, and it's like, we're, we're human beings and so some of you will be annoying to other people and some of you will misunderstand each other. And some of you will have disagreements with each other. Shocker, right? And, and maybe some of you have bad breath. Right? It's like, it's just, this is a human gathering, right? Brought together by God. But if, we folk, if, if our eyes are only on the human level, and this is what C.S. Lewis writes about. He's like, New Christians can become very easily discouraged, or Christians of any age, right, can become disillusioned by looking at the church only on the human level and saying, wow, this is a bunch of sinners. Aren't we hopeless, right? Or, wow, there's not very many of us. Aren't we hopeless? Or like the churches of Asia Minor that John was writing to in Revelation. Wow, we're under a lot of persecution. Aren't we hopeless, right? And, and of course, the place for hope is to look up, right? The hope for the church of God and for individual churches of God has never been in human energy or effort or in human ability. It's in the, it's in the ability and the power of the Almighty God. And as we look around this church, we can, we can see each other as fellow believers and recognize these people belong to that great heavenly throng. These people belong to the universal church of God. These people belong to the beloved church of God, like we read about in Ephesians. These people are so loved by God that Jesus individually and personally gave up his life for them. Right? You start getting in an argument with someone, you feel a root of bitterness spring up, call that to mind. Jesus loves this person with a tenderness you can't even understand, or maybe that you're beginning to understand in your own heart, right? And that we can understand, too, that the people around us, we're dealing with eternal souls here. We ought not to treat each other lightly, right? These, these people that, that we gather together with week after week, those who are Christians will live forever in the very presence of God. It's like that's not a light thing. And we can call to mind that heavenly assembly and understand what the weight of what we're dealing with, with the people that we fellowship with. And we can also understand that we're not alone. We're, a, we're an independent church. We're not affiliated with any denomination, and that has advantages because we don't necessarily get pulled along with the, uh, 
um, the errors of any particular denomination. Um, but the, the, the danger that we should watch out for is beginning to think that we're somehow an island, right? Either being tempted to think that we're all alone in the world, that we're, only, we're the only faithful ones, um, or forgetting that we have brothers and sisters around the world and locally right, who are working for the kingdom alongside us. So in gathering together on a Sunday morning as a church, we can look to that heavenly assembly and understand we're actually part of something that's much bigger than ourselves, much bigger than ourselves as individuals and much bigger than ourselves as a congregation. We're a part of a great work that the Lord is doing in the world. That when we when we sing together on Sunday mornings and raise our songs of praise to Jesus, we're actually joining in a heavenly song that's been going on a long time, that's going on in heaven even now, that's being sung by millions of Christians around the world this Lord's Day morning. That when we go to the Word, we're going to an eternal Word, right? Which has been read and studied by untold millions of believers that have gone before, that we're passing on to believers who will come after, and that even now, millions of Christians around the world are studying this morning, sitting under the teaching of our Lord in the scriptures. That when we pray together on Sunday mornings, we lift up our prayers to the throne of God. It's not just up from this church, right? Churches all around the world, believers all around the world, and and all of our prayers wafting up like incense before the throne of God. That when we baptize believers into our congregation, we're, we're baptizing using a baptism that's, that's been given to untold millions of Christians since the beginning of the church. It's an ancient thing. And it's something that we share with believers all around the world. And this morning, I want to think specifically about the Lord's Supper. That when we come to the Lord's table and eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us for the forgiveness of sins, we're joining in on something that Christians are doing all around the world and have done since Christ's resurrection. That we're coming to a table that's actually much bigger than this little bit. Right? We could, none of us, we couldn't all fit around this table, right? Um, that's not the point. It's actually a signifier. It's a sign of the great feasting table of Jesus that we've all been invited to. Um, there's a, in a sense, there's a heavenly table that, that stretches on to infinity, right? Where the universal church of God will all feast one day in the presence of our Savior. And this is a foretaste of that feast, a reminder, right? Um, we who've been washed by the blood our robes white by the blood of the Lamb come to the table and remember his broken body, his shed blood for us, for our forgiveness. I'll have Kevin come up and, um, and we're going we're gonna to go to the Lord's table. What is the church? It's the universal church. It's the great gathering around the throne in heaven. And yet we're also a little outpost of that heavenly kingdom, right? A, a small sub-gathering of that great and glorious gathering.
and and a place where heaven touches down to earth. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians warns that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So I'd ask you to consider this morning if you're in the faith, um, that if you're in Christ and if you belong to him, that you'd come to the table and, and join us. John 6, beginning in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's proclaim together the life that we have in Jesus' death and in his resurrection.